Today we start a new series, and a series I'm very excited about. I, I, I believe it flows really well from our Attributes of God series. And considering, okay, what does God, in who He is, what does He want for His church? What out of His attributes and His nature and what He has invested in the church, what does He want our response to be? Just by way of starters, maybe to, to help us understand what we'll be talking about if you have a, an iPhone or a smartphone, appointments come up on your phone, right? And one of the dreaded appointments that might come up on your phone is this, if I can get this working. <laughs> I heard groans. What if this came up on your phone, you're at work, performance review today? What kind of things go through your mind? Erase. Erase? <laughs> Ignore. Close. What was that? Easy A. Easy A, okay. <laughs> Do employees love seeing something like this? No. Do managers love seeing something like this? No. no. <laughs> There's someone that's done some employee reviews. Employee reviews are sort of the, the bane of business, but something that are, are a necessary, some managers describe them as a necessary evil. It's when your boss calls you in and evaluates everything you've done for the last year. Oh, what a pleasant meeting. There was an online um, website that you could click and, and it would generate some statements for employee reviews. Thought these were very interesting. He has a wide variety of interests and pursuits and a thorough analysis of his performance will surprise you. Think about that for a moment. These are intentionally ambiguous. How will it surprise you? Will it surprise you in a negative way, in a positive way? Mr. Jones makes decisions with minimal direction. In other words, he doesn't follow direction. He has proven to be one of the company's larger investments, and his performance defies measurement. I hope none of you have gotten these on your, your performance reviews. Um, Mr. Jones has been responsible for the changes in our work group dynamics. He does the kind of work you don't expect to see today. <laughs> Where do you go with that? Um, one other one works well when under constant supervision and cornered like a rat in the trap. <laughs> Employee reviews. But this morning, what would happen if Jesus walked through the door and said, I'm going to review Village Bible Church? Your performance review started at 9.15 today when you all got here. And it ends at, you know, 2.30 when you all finally leave. No, it, it's, it's great. The fellowship is great. What would happen if he walked in and evaluated us this morning? If he, if he observed every conversation that has already happened this morning? If he observed and knew every thought that we had in relationship to each other as, each other, as we all came through the door? If he observed our worship and was able to know if we were focused on him and who he is and his work, or if we were focused on what we're going to have for lunch. If he was able to observe every ministry and sit in on every ministry and, and our attitude toward ministry and the way we do ministry, what would his answer be? Would he come to us at, at 12.30 and say, let's get together, we're going to talk? Which would be just scary to have Jesus come and say that. 
But would it be a pat on the back saying, you know, there's some things you're doing really well? Or would he have some things to point out and say, this isn't the church that I intended in these areas? See, performance reviews sometimes are encouraging, sometimes are convicting, sometimes are challenging, sometimes contain rebuke. And so for the next few weeks, we want to invite Jesus to do a performance review in our church. I know no employees would invite a performance review from their boss usually. But we want to invite Jesus to do a performance review of our church to say, what do you expect? What kinds of things are we doing well? What kinds of things do we need to improve in? Because that's what Jesus does in the book of Revelation chapters 2 and 3. He comes to his church and he, and he he lists seven churches which are representative of the universal church because they're representative of what God Almighty expects in his church even today. And he goes through each one and, and he lists things they're doing well, all except one. And he lists things they're doing poorly. And, and there's a couple of churches that don't have any of, of that item in their list. But the purpose is to refine the church into what He desires His church to be. And so right from the start, as as we're about to open Revelation, the question we start with is, do we want to be the church that God desires? Do we want to be a church that does what God wants, exhibits the attitudes that He wants, and reflects our Lord and Savior? Because to do that is not always an easy process. Sometimes it takes some pruning, some revealing, some challenges. But it's worth it. It's worth it. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 1. And today we're going to introduce the series and and skim through Revelation chapter 1. Then we'll be covering chapters 2 and 3 in the next seven weeks. And the the thing to understand is Revelation is is a much larger book. And and chapters 2 and 3 are written to the church to prepare the church to be the church, especially in light of what's happening. The rest of it, chapters 4 and on, have to do with some future events and how to encourage the church that God is sovereign and that God is at work. So we're focusing on those first few chapters. And so as we go through chapter 1 today, we'll focus on those items that deal with the church and God's review of the church, His evaluation of the church. But I'd like to start with some details on Revelation. It's good to understand the background, what's going on, who wrote it, who it's to, and all of those things help us interpret God's Word correctly and understand what He's saying. So, so jump to verse 9 right from the start, and then we'll go back and get the whole chapter in a moment here. Verse 9 through 11, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamum, to Thyatira, and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. And right in that section, and this is his his intro to the the book, we get all kinds of fun details and, and things that we can explore to figure out what's going on here. The first is the author. And in your notes, you have a section for the details on Revelation. The author is the Apostle John. The same John that walked with Jesus, the disciple that Jesus loved. 
Now, there's been all kinds of debate, and some have said, well, maybe it's a different John, or John the Elder, or a John we don't know. But most of the evidence points to, overwhelmingly, that this is John the Apostle. The man that wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, the epistles that wrote the Gospel of John, and who walked with Christ. And so, at, at this point, John's getting a little bit older. The date is probably around A.D. 95. And so this is about 60, a little over 60 years from when Christ was on the face of the earth. And so we have the Apostle John getting older and we find him in prison. See, AD 95 was toward the end of the Roman Emperor Domitian. And one of the things that he did was start to persecute the church. And he instituted a law of emperor worship said, everyone needs to call me Lord and God. And if you don't, you're breaking the law and can be punished. And so if you look in those verses, what was John in prison for? He was in prison for the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus. He was in prison because, and we see that a number of times in Revelation, those phrase, he refused to confess the emperor as Lord and God, and in fact, shared God's Word and wouldn't stop sharing God's Word and shared the Gospel and wouldn't stop sharing the Gospel. And so as Domitian was increasing persecution of the church and and whereas Nero had intense persecution but it was more localized, Domitian, it was a, a much broader persecution, we see John thrown into exile because of his stand for God. Because he stood up and said, the, the Lord God Almighty is the only Lord and God not the emperor. And so he ended up on the island of Patmos. We have a, a map here. And if you can and see, the print's a little small, but Patmos is right here. It's this island, and this is Asia Minor. Over here is Israel. And Patmos is right here, and it was a, a, an island where they would mine rock, and they had quarries there. And so to be exiled on Patmos was to be pretty much slave labor. And so you had to, to mine these stones for the building projects of the Roman Empire. And he was stuck there, looking across the water to Ephesus, which is a place where he lived and ministered. Just about 45 miles away, not a huge area. And so this is the area that, where he's at, where he lived, sitting alongside felons people that had committed evil and atrocities, and his only crime was serving the living God. And as we look at those verses, we see a number of other details. I, John, your brother and partner, and we see him coming alongside these churches, and he's partnering in three things, in the tribulation or the trials, but also in the kingdom that God has made us, a kingdom, a church, a fellowship of believers and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, looking forward to the return of Christ. And then he describes what's happening. He says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day, so he's worshiping, and the Holy Spirit comes and gives him these visions. And I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches. And then we have the list of the seven churches. And these churches are all in red on the map here. So these are the churches he's sent to. And it's interesting because the order of the churches probably followed the route that a delivery person 
sort of, it's roughly a circle that a delivery person would deliver the letters. And so these letters were delivered to these churches and to many other churches. Just for frame of reference, you see Laodicea here? Can you see what's right under it? No. A, a city with blurry writing. No, uh, Colossae. Absolutely. And that's where Colossians was written to, which we studied last year. And that's the, the three cities, Hierapolis, Laodicea, and Colossae that's there. And so this is the same region. And these churches would have shared these letters that had come. And, and each of the churches would have gotten a full letter and they would have shared it with all the other churches around. Because God's intention was that these churches, that this letter to these churches would be read by His church as a whole. Not just one church. One of the numbers that will come up, and in, in Revelation we have a lot of symbolism, we have a lot of numbers, and, and we want to always be careful, and, and whenever we're dealing with symbolism, hold that with a little bit more of an open hand. I, I don't, we don't want to come and say, well, this image in Revelation is definitely this, and you are evil if you don't believe that. No, we don't know sometimes completely, and so we're, we're looking at all the clues and coming to conclusions But one of the things that is often used is numbers. And the number seven keeps coming up in Revelation because the number seven meant something. For us, we're like, ah, seven. It really, who cares? But for them, the number seven represented completeness or fullness. And so we're going to see, even in the chapter today, four or five different times that the number seven is used with the idea of completeness or fullness. In the Old Testament, when it, when you would read something that said, and God judged them seven times, that often was saying that God judged them fully and completely with no exception. And so the number means, today numbers mean something though, maybe not the number seven. Um, over here at the, the Marriott Hotel, we go up and down the stairs sometimes for exercise and getting in shape, and you're going up the stairs and you get to twelve, And then what's the next floor? Fourteen. And you think, yes, I just did two flights of stairs in an amazing amount of time. No, there's no floor thirteen. Why? It's unlucky, right? We're superstitious. And so we can understand the use of numbers and and that they mean something. And so when God says, especially in verse 4, that He wrote to the seven churches of Asia, John to the seven churches that are in Asia, that word, the, the number seven there is representative of the church as a whole. We see that in, we'll see that in a moment in verses one, two, and three as we study that. But God here is writing to his churches with what he expects from his church. And as we studied in the attributes of God, God doesn't change. He's the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And so what he expected of the church 2,000 years ago is the same thing he expects of the church today. When he says, your first love should be me, when he says that 2,000 years ago, the same is true today. Our first love should be him. And so as we study these churches, this is an honest evaluation of where the church today should be. So that's some of the details that that get us into um, Revelation. Understanding that the church is about to undergo persecution, it's started. We see the first part of Revelation to the church preparing them to encounter that, that persecution. 
preparing them to be the church God wants them to be because if they're not, they will crumble and they will fall and they will fail. And the second part of Revelation talks about the upcoming tribulation so they wouldn't be surprised and mostly so they would know God is sovereign and nothing will stop His plan. No matter what tribulation, no matter what trial, they can trust Him. So let's jump back to verse 1. And today as we we get into the series, I want to scan chapter 1 and look at some of Christ's thoughts that He gives in His introduction. Introductions, especially in, in biblical books, often have clues to where God is, what God is trying to say to us in the rest of the book. And so the introduction is important because it sets the stage. It sets the scene. This is what Jesus feels is important for us as we begin to listen to his evaluation and critique of the church. So in verses 1 through 3, we have the first section. In the first point in your notes, this is the prologue. This is, is, is right before the introduction, a statement of purpose. But the point of it is take, take Christ's evaluation to heart. Take Christ's evaluation to heart. Listen to and apply Christ's evaluation of the church. Take it seriously. If Christ were talking to us, He would say, listen to what I say and go do it. Don't ignore it. Let's read verses 1-3. through The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave Him to show His servants and the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending His angel to His servant John, who bore witness to the Word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all he saw, to all that he saw. In verse 3, Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. And in verse 3, you get a statement of, of how Christ wants us to understand this book. How He wants us to take it. He wants us to take it to heart. To to evaluate it. And He starts by saying, this is the revelation from God through Jesus Christ to John. And John writes it to us. And you see in verse 1, it's written to His servants. All of His servants. In verse 3, it's written to those who read the Word. Those that hear the Word. And we, we see language there that is much broader than one individual church, but to all the church that hears this, that understands this. It's interesting in verse 3 there, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it. The first phrase is in the singular, illustrating someone standing in front of the church reading God's Word, or standing in the midst of the assembly And then the second and third phrase are plural, speaking to the church that has heard God's Word. And what we see is God wants us to do much more than just listen to God's Word in an in and out way. In one ear and out the other ear. He wants us to actually apply it. To actually change. You know, we, we can approach, you can approach an employee review at work sort of in the Charlie Brown method. Wah, 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 wah. Meeting done, I go back to work. We can approach God's Word the same way. Wah, 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 And never be changed by it. But God, right here at the beginning, says, blessed are those that, that, blessed is the one that reads it. Blessed are you that hear. But the third one is important. If you keep God's Word, if you obey it, if you put it into practice, 
You will be blessed. Have God's favor on you. I know at Reality Check, you guys just studied the Beatitudes, right? Well, this is the first of seven Beatitudes in the book of Revelation. Of seven blessed statements. And so the Beatitudes are in Revelation as well. And, and so this is God making a promise. You will be blessed, not with, with riches and not physically, but you will be blessed with my favor if you take this prophecy seriously. If you take this evaluation seriously. Evaluations are never easy to hear. There are things that he will tell the churches that are stern rebukes because he is being honest with his church. And I pray that as we go through the seven churches, that at times we will be encouraged, but I pray at times we will be rebuked as a church. And our choice then is how do we respond to that? Just like in a, in a, just like in a work setting, we can say, well, the boss doesn't know anything. What, what a fool. We could point and say, well, actually, none of those things applied to me. That was all my coworkers' fault. We could just ignore it, like I, I said, the Charlie Brown mentality. But how are we going to come to God's instruction to the church? to what Christ wants from His church. And our challenge is to be open to that. Is to be open to be convicted, to have our toes stepped on, to be open to change. To ask the question, are we the church God desires? As we read on in verse 4, we come to a statement of who God is. And this is the greeting. John to the seven churches that are in Asia. Grace to you and peace. And the normal formula of grace, speaking of God's unmerited favor, and then peace that comes from a relationship with God. Grace and peace from Him who is and who was and who is to come. And we begin, that's the first phrase of this incredible section that is declaring the majesty in the person of God. And this is intentional that God would start with His character, with His nature, with who He is. And so point number two, the greeting, remember that these words are from God Almighty. That these words are from God Almighty. In the first one, Jesus says, listen to what I say and do it. In this one, He says, I am God Almighty over all things. It answers the question of why should we listen to Him? Why should we take into account what we're about to read in chapters 2 and 3? Because He is God Almighty and over all things. Just like in in a company, coming back to the employee reviews, who's giving the review makes a difference, right? If some stranger walks in off the street and says, I'm going to do a review of your performance. Well, no, actually you're not. we, We would laugh it off. If your coworker came and did that, would that, that would have a little more importance, but not a level of importance as if your boss called you in. But what if the president of your company called you in? <laughs> Said, hey. Yeah, Joe's like, uh-oh. Hey, Joe, we need to talk. Come on into my office. I'd like to talk about the job you're doing. That carries a, a weight of the office. And so it's very significant here that as God is about to evaluate the church, He starts with the weight of His office. The weight of His person. Who He is. 
And in verses 4 and 5, he starts with the Trinity. Grace to you and peace from Him who is and who was and who is to come. This is a reference to God the Father. It's reminiscent of the I Am passage in Exodus. That He has always been, He is now, He always will be. He is the source of all things. And then we see the next phrase, and from the seven spirits who are before His throne. Lots of discussion about what those seven spirits are. But if you read verse 5, it helps us understand the context. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth. And we have a construction here of God the Father, the Holy Spirit, and God the Son. And Some have said, well, those seven spirits are angels. The seven angels of, of the apocalypse. The difficulty with that is John, when he's referring to angels, almost always calls them angels. He doesn't call them spirits. In fact, in no other place does he call angels spirits. And this is not saying that there are seven Holy Spirits, but to remember the word seven? The word seven refers to completeness and wholeness and the entirety of his work. And John is using this symbolically with seven churches and and seven spirits to show that the Holy Spirit is working in the entirety of his church. In Isaiah 11, verses 2 and 3, we have different aspects of the Holy Spirit listed. Many have come up with seven there. In Zechariah 4, 2 through 6, we see a reference to a sevenfold spirit. In fact, if you have an NIV in your notes, it says this could be translated sevenfold, referring to the seven aspects of his, his work and his role. And whereas we can't know for sure the, the imagery being used here, I think the best option is to say that this is a, a, a reference to the fullness of the Holy Spirit. That the Holy Spirit is fully God and fully at work and fully in charge of the church. And then in verse 5 you see God the Son, Jesus Christ. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth. And it's a, a beautiful reference to Christ's role as prophet, faithful witness, priest, firstborn of the dead, referring to his resurrection, his sacrifice, and king, the ruler of the kings of the earth. And so the first point John makes, and Christ through John, is yes, you need to listen and do what I say, but here's my credentials I am God Almighty. I have authority over all things, I created all things. And then as we go on in verse 3, we see the full, not only the fullness of the Trinity, but the fullness of the work of Christ. To Him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by His blood and made us a kingdom of priests to His God and Father, to Him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Do you see the sequence there? What's being described is salvation. First step that He loved us. We love Him because He first loved us. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He loved us first. And then the next step there is that He freed us from our sins by His blood through His death on the cross in our place. And by our repentance and coming to Him, our sins are paid for. And verse 6 is so significant. And made us a kingdom priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. 
Because we see imagery there of the church, of His kingdom, and we are His kingdom on earth right now, the already part of His kingdom. And Jesus is saying, I started the church. The only reason you are a church is because of my blood on the cross. And that points to his credentials to be able to tell us what he expects from the church. In 1 Peter 2, 9-10, through great verse that we, we've talked about many times, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. These two verses go hand in hand. That God has called to Himself a people. In our, our Western mindset, we often reinterpret that to God has called to Himself a person. See the difference? And He has called to us individually, but He has intentionally created a community that is His church. Village family. Church is God's creation. It is His intention for how we are to, to walk with Him. It's not some man's idea of what to do on Sunday morning instead of watching the, the, the Dodger preseason. Maybe the angels are playing too. It is God's intention for how His people will come together to do His work. Never forget that. He called out a people, a holy nation. He called out a people for His kingdom. And so He really is the only one that has a right to say what He expects from that people, from that kingdom. Verse 7, you see the final work of Christ listed here. Behold, He is coming back with the clouds, coming with the clouds, and every eye will see Him, even those who pierced Him. And you get an element of God's justice here. And all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of Him. Even so, Amen. And John is saying, God is coming. He's coming back for His church, but He's also coming back and everyone that has opposed His church will see Him and they're going to get theirs. And He says, Amen. Celebrating the justice of God. And so as we come to God's evaluation of the church, God has said you need to listen and do it, but He's also said, I am God Almighty, and I have all authority. Finally, verse 8, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Same statement that we saw back up in, in, in verse 4. It's a sandwich effect. And it's a reminder that we are dealing with the holy. We are dealing with the sacred. As we come to this series, the title intentionally is not how we can make the church better. The title is what Christ wants for His church. That's a sacred statement. It's a holy moment where we come to the one who was and is and is to come and we listen and we learn. Jumping to verse 12, we get into the first vision. 
And so one through, one through eight there are, are preliminary. Nine through eleven gives us some background. And then in verse twelve, we jump right into the first vision of what John saw. And the first vision is all about the, the understanding that this is Christ's church. God said, listen to me and do it. I am God Almighty. And now He says, this is my church. And that's, that's huge for us to understand. If you go away with anything this morning, I pray that it's the fact that Village Bible Church is God's church. It is not Pastor Ron's church. It is not the elders' church. It is not your church from the sense of you have ownership and you have authority over it. It is God's church. And that difference makes all the difference in the world of how we view church, how we evaluate church, why we come to church, why we don't come to church. Let's read how the vision starts. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. So there's this voice that sounded like a trumpet behind him. And John turns. Now keep in mind, John walked with Christ, right? Sixty years before. I don't know how many of you remember people from 60 years back. It's a little fuzzy at times. I can't remember 40 years back. But 60 years back, John turns and imagine, imagine the shock as he sees his Lord and Savior in glorified form as we're going to read. But he turns and he sees the voice that's speaking to him. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And we have seven lampstands up here, individual lampstands, each with a a light on top. For them, it would have been a basin with oil and a wick. And in the midst of the seven lampstands, this is beautiful, in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest, The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. And you see the word was like a lot. Saying that this is an imagery of what John saw. But what we see is is Christ, the glorified Christ, walking among the seven lampstands. And as we're going to see in, in verses to come, the seven lampstands represented those seven churches. And so the picture of God Almighty walking through the seven churches is a picture of His presence with them. It's a picture of His authority over them, His watching over them, His evaluation of them especially with the description of the glorified Christ. And so the the opening scene is that this is Christ's church. It is to be in His image, not mine and not yours. Think of some of the description that are there in verse 13. In the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his neck. And you see royalty and authority. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. And you see wisdom. You see the, uh, a reference to the Ancient of Days in Daniel 7. You see purity and you see holiness. The wisdom 
of omniscience. His eyes were like a flame of fire. And you see a God that is able to see everything that happens, discern and judge everything, that is omnipresent, that nothing can escape His eyes. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace, and His voice was like the roar of many waters. The burnished bronze was a metal that was one of the strongest metals they had, and it represented power, especially in feet. Because what can you do with feet? You can stomp. You can kick. So it represented power and the, the omnipotence of God. The voice, the roar of many waters. A voice that is unmistakable. That is deafening. That we cannot ignore. One of the waterfalls that I've hiked as I was growing up was Multnomah Falls up in Oregon. And it used to be they don't let you do this anymore, but you could hike around behind the falls. So, so you're just about 10 feet away from the, one of the tallest waterfalls in North America. The sound under there is deafening. You can't ignore it. There's power in it. There's strength in it. There's authority in it. And so when we see a picture of Christ's voice like the roar of many waters, that's what I picture. Standing there, listening to the powerful noise. In his right hand, he held seven stars, which he's going to explain at the the last verses of the chapter. But it has to do with his authority, his sovereignty. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And we know the Word of God in Hebrews is, is Hebrews 4.12 is explained as a double-edged sword pierces even to the soul. It reveals, it exposes, it convicts. Because that is what He wants His Word to do in our lives. And finally, His face was like the sun shining in full strength. And we see the glory of God. Glory that you can't even fully look at the radiance of the Almighty. And John sees this. And it represents that God Almighty is over His church. But then look at His response. His response in that next verse, verse 17. When I saw Him, I fell at His feet as though dead. Think about that statement. When I saw Him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Not just in worship, something that is, that is even deeper than worship, something that is so Im- impactful on him that he can't even move. That this man that he walked with 60 years before, that he was called the disciple that Jesus loved, he now is seeing again for the first time and seeing him in glory. And he now understands that Jesus is God. Wow. And when we think of Christ as the head of the church, we have to understand we come here every week to meet the head, to meet our Lord and Savior. Don't take that lightly. As we come and as we experience who Christ is, as He reveals Himself to our, in, in our lives, I think we need some more moments where we fall at His feet and humble ourselves 
and realize he is God and I am not. But Jesus laid his right hand on him. John said, but he laid his right hand on me saying, fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. Write therefore these things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. And Jesus comforts him and lifts him up and says, fear not, I'm the living God. I think of where Jesus said, I have come that you might have life and have it to the full. Yes, he holds the key to death in Hades and he will judge those that are not serving him, but John's not one of those people. And he says, you are my beloved son. My adopted son. And he brings him in. But all of this should stir in our hearts that Christ is the head. Ephesians 1, 22, And He being God put all things under His feet, being Jesus's, and gave Him as head over all things to the church, which is His body, the fullness of Him who fills all in all. In Colossians 1.18, And He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. What difference does it make that this is God's church? I remember my first car. And I remember Dad giving me the keys. And he said, Son... This is not your car. This is my car. Actually, he said, this is your mother's car. (laughs) This is your mother's car. We are loaning it to you. What difference did that make than him saying, here's your keys, do what you want? I was responsible to someone. It made a difference of how I took care of that car. It made a difference that I could not do what I wanted with that car. I was to do what Dad wanted with that car. And so when we say, this is God's church and not yours and not mine, we are saying that this is about what God wants for His church. So many times we try to evaluate church and turn church into something that's our own image. I will evaluate it if I like it. I will evaluate it if it's something that appeals to me. And that is not a godly way to evaluate a church. A godly way to evaluate the church is, is this church based on God Almighty? And is this church doing God's work? It's His church. What does He want from His church? And so many times, church becomes a social club. It becomes a place where where we expect certain things and forget that God expects certain things. And so our challenge in the next seven weeks is what does God want from His church? Can I change my evaluation of the church to be what He desires, not what I desire? To glorify Him through the church rather than to glorify myself. That's a challenge. Because I think that has crept into our mindset in so many different ways in so many dangerous ways. The chapter ends 
with some explanations. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Again, lots has been written about what those seven stars are. Some have said they're angels and and they, they could be angels. They could be an angel that God has assigned to each church. More than likely, though, the, the word there also means messenger, and it's used elsewhere in the New Testament of even human messengers at times. It's most likely a reference to the leaders of each of those churches, that God holds them in his hands. He's watching out for them, but he's also sovereign over them, has authority over them. But think for a moment, in the last point, point number four there, Think for a moment of why God would call his church a lampstand. Because right from the start, we get a picture of what God wants for his church. Why a lampstand? Well, a lampstand was designed to elevate the lamp, to elevate the light, so that way everyone could see the light and the room, the dark room, could be lit. And that's God's desire for his church. So the fourth point there is Christ's expectation is for the church to be a light. In his words, my church is to be my light. And so he said, I want you to listen to what I say and do it because I am God Almighty and because it's my church, not yours. And so what I want you to do is to be a light. To be a light. Matthew five fourteen through 16 says, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so they may see your good works and give glory to God the Father. Ladies and gentlemen of village, we're a lampstand. It's what we are. It's what God intended us to be. And so will we listen to his evaluation and be the lampstand he wants us to be, be the light in this world he wants us to be, be the people he wants us to be? Performance review at 3. Well, actually, it starts at 9.30 next Sunday morning with the church at Ephesus but I want to hear what God has to say to his church because we want to be his light to the world. Let's pray. Lord God Almighty, the one who was and who is and who is to come, the one who loved us, died on the cross for us, made us a people, a kingdom, and is coming back to take us home. Lord, we as your people acknowledge right now that you alone, you alone have the authority to evaluate your church. And Lord, we submit to that. That as we go through the study, Lord, may you reveal what you want for us as village in our hearts, in our attitudes, in our walk with you. And Lord, I pray that everyone in this neighborhood 
everyone in the neighborhood of, of every, where we live would see a light shining on a lampstand. That you would not remove our lampstand because we simply aren't shining. Lord, may we be your people and your church. And Lord, I'm excited because I see you doing powerful things through Village Bible Church. I see inroads being made in this community. I see inroads being made in, in, in people's everyday lives as they share the gospel and are a light for you. And Lord, may we refine that, allow you to refine us so we will reach a lost world for you. We are your church. Do with us as you will. In Jesus' name, amen.